Well, you sure have made a grand entrance into this world now, haven't you? Not an entrance a king would make. A manger of all places. No palace, no guards. Just a barn and a lot of hay, if you ask me. <laughs> what am I to make of all of these guests? That silent night sure got loud fast. I suppose you'd like to know how all this came to be, wouldn't you? Well, on an ordinary day, more ordinary than you can imagine, an angel came to me. I know. I had trouble believing it myself. He spoke of things I couldn't really comprehend. He spoke of you, the Son of the Most High. He looked straight at me, as if to ask, will you say yes? It was the scariest yes I'd ever uttered this was an impossible yes that only God could make possible never in my wildest dreams speaking of dreams is it okay that I have dreams for you too all mamas have dreams for their babies you know even babies announced by heavenly hosts. My little one. I have a strange feeling this will not be the only yes required of me. I cannot begin to imagine the yeses that will be required of you. day at a time to keep saying yes. Well, we're glad you're with us today. If you're joining us on Facebook Live, a special welcome to you as well. We're glad that you're here. We are in part two of our Christmas series entitled simply Announcing. Last week we looked at the incredible announcement given through the prophet Isaiah regarding the coming of the one about whom Christmas is all about. We looked at the passage where he said, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will conceive and bear a son, and shall name him Emmanuel. Now, the Christmas story is incredible when you think about it. I mean, a pregnant virgin, that is a contradiction in terms, isn't it? But that's exactly what Isaiah said was going to happen. So, you know, I get it. 
if you're struggling with this concept. Um, and what I want you to know this morning is this. If you're watching us online, if you're here with us, what I want you to know is this. We Christians don't say, close your eyes and just believe. We don't say that. What we say, however, is check this out for yourself. Investigate the claims thoroughly. Because your conclusion about Jesus is a life or death matter. You know, lawyers make a difference in our society. Lawyers make a difference between making a claim. Anyone can claim anything and sue anyone, right? So lawyers make a distinction between making a claim and proving a case. And proving a case only becomes possible if you have good evidence. So lawyers are in the evidence business. And they're not going to just accept any claims you make, religious or not, without good reason to believe it. So with that in mind, it is highly significant that throughout history, great lawyers and judges and legal scholars have come to faith in Jesus Christ. I think of one man, his name was uh, Morrison, and, and James Morrison, Frank Morrison, excuse me, Frank Morrison decided to write a book. He was a lawyer by trade, and he wanted to put the world out of its misery of Christianity early on. And he said, I'm going to write a book that disproves Christianity. And so he started to write a book. The name of Morrison's book became Who Moved the Stone? And the second chapter is entitled, The Book That Refused to Be Written. Because Morrison, deciding that he was going to look at the evidence that was existent, was going to write a, 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 a book that basically said, all of this is fake. But as he dug into the evidence as a lawyer, and he said, I'm only going to admit that which is admitted in a court of law, as he dug into the evidence, he became a believer because of the evidence. The evidence for Christianity is so solid. And the solidity of the gospel testimony, that's the first four books of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, about Jesus, is, so, is, is, is solid. These early witnesses who wrote, or the friends of eyewitnesses, record, uh, their records qualify as what we call reliable testimony under the ancient document rules. And because of that, they would be admitted into evidence in any court in our world. These four documents, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are either first-hand reports for us, as in Matthew and John, or they're reports of people who were friends with eyewitnesses, as in Mark and Luke. Um, and Luke falls into the thing, he, he kind of was an investigative reporter. Dr. Luke was not a disciple of Jesus Christ. He was not one of the twelve. He was a Greek physician sent by a Roman official by the name of Theophilus to find out, is this information true? I want to know. 
Is this information true? And the, and the gospel that he writes to us in his book, in Luke, is a recording of that evidence. And these early documents were preserved for us in such a way that even though critics down through the centuries have tried to discredit them, they have not been able to do it. You know, like a defendant in the court of law, you know, they're always presumed innocent. They're supposed to be presumed innocent until proven guilty. But the critics have not been able to give us, for centuries, have not been able to give us a shred, a single shred of, of evidence that discredits the claims of these early authors. The soundness of the four Gospels, of course, depend on the early dating of these Gospels um, and, and their authorship. They are people who really did know Jesus personally. And corroboration of that comes not just from the Bible. We, you know, there's, there's more than just the Bible on this. It comes from sources like this guy named Papias of Heropolis. Papias of Heropolis was a um, student of the Apostle John. Papias in his writings, and everybody accepts Papias as accurate, Papias in his writing tells us that the four Gospels, written either by an Apostle, again Matthew and, and John, or the friend of an Apostle under the auspices of Apostle, Mark writing under Peter's guidance, and Luke writing under the Apostle Paul's guidance, he, he says these were written by his date, by the end of the first century. And all of the evidence has pointed to the fact that these four books, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, were in circulation. This is so important. Realize this. These books are already in circulation while hostile witnesses of Jesus' ministry are still alive. People who wanted to stop it are still living and breathing. Now I tell you that because these opponents of Christ would have been the equivalent today of a prosecuting attorney. They had the means, they had the motive, they had the opportunity to refute the gospel accounts of Jesus' miraculous ministry. If it had not happened as the gospel writers claimed. Now think about this for a minute. We have all of this evidence for what happened. We don't have one writing saying it's not true from that time frame. Not one. And because of that, this is powerful evidence that the miraculous picture that these guys paint of Jesus is accurate. As a matter of fact, when you think about it, the critics do not arise until about the 17th century. They're not in the first century when the eyewitnesses are around. They come till this, in the 17th century, and here's the thing. Modern critics constantly try to late-date the Gospels. The reason they want to late-date the Gospels, say that it happened maybe in 300 or 400 A.D., um, the reason they constantly try to do this is because they want you to believe that what Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and particularly what Matthew and Luke say about the birth of Jesus, they want you to believe that that is simply lies of legend. 
that happened so far after, and there was no one around to, to debate it. That's what they want you to believe. But here's the thing. The people who could have debated it didn't. Now, we'll talk about this in just a minute. They tried to explain it away, but they didn't debate it. As a matter of fact, the legends of what might have happened didn't start happening until about the 17th century. When these modern men who says you can't believe that started to look back and say, just because I don't believe in miracles, I have to tell you that didn't happen. So let me try to figure out how it really happened. But when the gospel accounts are written and the eyewitnesses who wrote them are still alive, you don't find any opponent, any opponent, denying the events. Now again, there were those who tried to explain it away. Jewish leaders hint at the illegitimate birth of Jesus, but they never refute it. We'll talk a little bit more about that later. One of the Jewish leaders, you know, another thing is the Jewish leaders, they try to explain away the missing body. They hear the report. The soldiers come and say, angels came. We were helpless. We couldn't do anything. Stone open. Jesus walked out. So what do they do? They pay these guys off to give a different story. The disciples came and stole the body while we were sleeping. Now, here's the amazing thing about that. They don't claim that there was a body. They have to explain why there is no body. Nobody expected no body at the resurrection. So they have to find a way to try to explain it away. It takes 17 centuries, 17 centuries before men can start denying the facts that are recorded in this book. It appears to me that they're the ones relying on legend, not the ones who wrote the gospel. And you need to consider this. And again, I'm not arguing that you just close your eyes and believe. We're not arguing that. We're asking you to simply stop and use your head. Examine the evidence for yourself. Simon Greenleaf, who was a Harvard law professor and considered the greatest authority on legal evidence in the United States in the 19th century, wrote these words. All that Christianity asks of men on this subject, that is, on the testimony of the Gospels, is that they're shifted as if it were given in a court of justice. Look at the facts, he's saying. The probability, the probability of the veracity of the eyewitnesses and the reality of the occurrences which they relate to will increase until it acquires for all practical purposes the force of demonstration. So with that as a foundation, what we're asking you is we're asking you to consider this incredible announcement of an unmarried virgin. An announcement that was made 700 years for us by the pen of the apostle and the announcement that we're about to look at this morning in Luke chapter 1 beginning at verse 26. In the sixth month, of Elizabeth's pregnancy. This is one of Mary's relatives. God sent an angel to Gabriel, uh, sent the, uh, the angel Gabriel to Nazareth to a town in Galilee. Now, right off the bat, 
If you are making up a legend, if you're making up a story about Jesus Christ, you don't start in Nazareth. Nazareth is a small town in northern Judea, a small town that was on the wrong side of the tracks. As a matter of fact, the saying in Israel during the time of Jesus was nothing good ever comes out of that town. Nothing good comes from Nazareth. And Nazareth, not only being a small town, it was well away from the center of Jewish religious life in Jerusalem. Well away from the center of Jewish worship. No person who was making up a story would start in Nazareth. They wouldn't. So the fact that Luke starts there lends credibility to this account has a faithful one, one you can trust. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent an angel Gabriel to Nazareth to a town in Galilee to a virgin pledged to be married. She was engaged to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. Now, while critics looked at, we looked at this last week, while they tried to reinterpret the Hebrew word for virgin and say it just means young lady, it doesn't mean a, a virgin. And we looked at that last week. While they try to reinterpret that word to mean what they wanted to believe because they're trying to explain away the miracle, the word that Dr. Luke uses, and remember he's a physician, the word that Dr. Luke uses for virgin means virgin. It can't mean anything else. And remember that when Dr. Luke, who wrote this, wrote it, he was a physician by trade. He knows where babies come from. So it must have been amazing for him to have to put these words on, on paper. He reads, recording his message for Theophilus, and he says, I'm writing this. He says, I carefully examined it. And I want you to have the full facts. So he's not making this up. He says, Mary was an unmarried virgin. She was engaged, but she was still chaste. Now, so many get this wrong today. I'm just pausing here for just, this is so important. So many get this wrong today. When I started ministry, particularly among Christians, it was uncommon for me to have a couple come who were not sexually pure. Now coming to the close of my ministry, it is not uncommon for me to have people come who are not sexually pure, even Christians. We get this backwards. As a matter of fact, it's more uncommon for me to find people who aren't pure sexually than it is to find people who are pure sexually. And, and, and the thing that I want you to know, and the reason I'm, I'm pausing to say this here, it's a very practical application. You are damaging your future relationships if you jump this fence. I don't care who you are. You are damaging your future relationship if you jump this fence. I have to applaud Russell Wilson quarterback for the Seattle Seahawks and his girlfriend, Ciara, the singer, who publicly announced 
that they remain sexually pure until after their wedding because they said, he said, we wanted to get this right. We wanted to get this right. And that's something that's missing today. And it's an issue that you young people particularly need to know about because God is the one who created sex and sexuality. And he created it as good, and he created it, he gave us some guidelines regarding it. And he says, if you follow these guidelines, you're going to have a wonderful experience. But if you break them, it's going to break you. I have never met anybody who came to me and said, I wish I had more sex before I was married. I've had plenty of people come to me and say, that was a mistake. I wish I could go back and change it. Think of it this way. Christmas time. A fire in the fireplace. That's warm and comforting and there's just something really homey about it, right? But you take that fire out of the fireplace and it becomes destructive and fearful. Same thing with sex. Sex was made for marriage. Mary and Joseph got this right. They were saving themselves for that night. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Now, go back for a minute. He's coming to a young woman, a young, poor woman, who lives in a town that people of that day said nothing good ever comes from that town. Doesn't happen. So Mary's a young, poor female from the wrong side of the tracks. All the characteristics that would cause people to say if God was going to do something significant, it's not with her. Some of you are feeling the same way. God could never do anything significant for me. I have nothing. And I want you to know this, God delights and taking nothing and making it something. So here's this angel. And here's Mary. And how does she respond? (laughs) Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. Now, I'll just be honest with you. My sacred imagination... I think when that angel showed up and did this greeting, she probably started looking around for the escape route. I got to get out of here. This is, I'm in a dangerous situation. I don't know who this is. Never met this guy. I'm out here, but I, I got I to get away. Now, that word highly favored shouldn't be taken to mean that somehow Mary was worthy of God for this task because it doesn't mean that. The Greek here literally says you are greatly graced. Grace is something we don't deserve. As a matter of fact, it's only used one other time in in the New Testament. The other time that it's used in the New Testament is in Ephesians 1.6, where he's talking about believers, and he says you're highly favored. Okay, what he actually says, the way it's translated into the English, is you have been made acceptable. Because that's what great grace does. It makes the unaccepted acceptable to God. And you just need to to know this. Now, Catholic tradition holds that Mary 
was the product of what we call the Immaculate Conception. You probably have heard that term before, Immaculate Conception. Most of us think that it referred to Jesus. It didn't. In Catholic tradition, it refers to Mary herself. And what it means is that God did a marvelous work in her mother's body that kept Mary spotless from sin. And she was stayed a virgin forever. This came into the Catholic Church from Pope um, Pius the Ninth, who with his own authority, he didn't call a council, he didn't ask for advice, made this declaration. Now here's the thing, when you read the scripture, you realize, Mary realizes that this is not true. There's nothing special about her. She's wondering about what happened. She's confused. As a matter of fact, the New Living Translation puts it this way. She says, Confu I love the way it says it, confused and disturbed. Mary tried to think of what the angel could mean. What do you mean? I'm nobody special. I'm nobody special. Mary's highly favored by God because she has received God's grace. You can be highly favored by God if you will respond to God's grace. But this highly favored position is not something that Mary occupies alone. The reason any one of us has any standing with God is not because we're born special, but because of God's marvelous grace that's been extended to us. And remember, grace means something that I don't deserve. Unfortunately, the King James Version muddied the water for us here when it added a phrase to the end of this verse. And the angel came unto her and said, Hail thou, her highly favored, the Lord is with thee. Blessed are thou among women. I want you to know that is not in the Greek. The place that it first appears is in the Latin Vulgate. In the Latin Vulgate, that was the, the, the Latin, early Latin copies of stuff, they added this phrase, a guy by the name of Erasmus decided, because they realized that we don't have, we have very little Greek manuscripts left. Now we've got more today than they had then, but they didn't have many back then. So Erasmus was a, a, a Catholic monk who set out to translate or retranslate the Latin back into Greek. And the text that we get out of that, the Greek text that we get out of that is a Greek text by, called Textus Receptus, or the received text. Now, Textus Receptus means simply that the Pope received it. He accepted it. Erasmus says, as soon as he accepted it and it was, it was official, I set about to correct the mistakes I knew I made. So it's not the best text to be working off of, but that's what King James worked off of, and that's what they came, blessed are thou, who among women, that comes from the Latin Vulgate, not from the English, early Greek manuscripts. Mary is not highly favored because she deserved it, any more than any of us are highly favored because we deserve it. You're not a Christian because you were good enough, or you're kind enough, or you grew up a certain way. Mary didn't believe she was highly accepted. We don't believe we're highly accepted. It is only God's extended grace that any of us has a right to participate in God's forever family and be made right with God.
Don't miss that. Mary's special place in history is because God extended to her his special grace and then called her for a special purpose. And understand this, after the birth of Jesus, she and Joseph had normal marital relationships. How do we know that? Because Jesus had brothers and sisters. They were younger brothers and sisters. They were not, as the Catholic Church claims, older brothers that came from a previous marriage that Joseph had, and then when his wife died, he married Mary, and he brought the family in. No. Nor are they cousins, as one time the Catholic Church said. They are brothers and sisters who are born to Mary and Joseph in the traditional way. There is nothing Listen to me, there is nothing wrong with a sexual relationship if it's kept in its right confines. When the angel comes and says, you know, you're greatly favored. Mary, you know, she's, she's wondering about what this guy, you know what, Mary's like you and me. Mary knew her heart. She knew her heart. And she knew she didn't deserve which she was now experiencing. She also knew her circumstances. If God was going to do something big, it certainly couldn't be through her. So the angel said to her, do not be afraid. Whenever you see this phrase, you can be sure of this. When an angel comes to you, if an angel comes to you and says, do not be afraid, you know why he's saying that? It's because you're afraid. What he actually says here in the Greek is, stop being afraid. Stop it. You have nothing to fear. Stop being afraid, Mary. You have found favor. You have received grace with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendant forever. His kingdom will never end. And now she's really confused. She says, how? How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? Now Mary states a fact here. This is so important. She knows how babies are born. She's not an ignorant country bumpkin, you know, in the first century who has no clue. She knows where babies come from. And let me pause here for just a minute. Again, you know, we, we, well, we've already dealt with the, the Hebrews thing. The Hebrews says this. It says, honor marriage and guard sacredness of sexual intimacy between a husband and wife. God draws a firm line against casual and illicit sex. Keep it in the fireplace and you'll be blessed. Get it out of the fireplace and you're in for trouble. Simple as that. Now, Isaiah predicts a virgin birth. Luke, in his announcement, says, Gabriel says, Mary come, he comes to Mary, who's a virgin, so there's a second witness to her condition. And then when he tells her what's going to happen, Mary says, oh, it can't be, I'm a virgin. So there are three witnesses saying, sexually pure, sexually pure, sexually pure. The only reason you reject that is because your opinion is more important than the facts. 
You can't believe that there's such a thing as a pregnant version. So we've got to find another way to explain it. The angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come on you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born of you will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age, and she who was said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month. Now, Elizabeth's son is a guy by the name of John the Baptist, Jesus' cousin. For nothing is impossible with God. The creative act of God was going to be accomplished by God, the Holy Spirit, in Mary's body. The virgin birth was a special miracle performed by the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, whereby the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, the eternal Son of God, took on a genuine human body but without sin, was born as a man without surrendering any of his godhood. He was fully man and fully God. Let that sink in. Jesus was not a good man. He is God in the flesh. He is God come looking for you. Now, let's just be honest because we're 21st century intelligent people. We struggle with miracles. We struggle with miracles. I'm virgin birth. I mean, this is something that defies explanation, doesn't it? And Satan, through the ages, tried to complicate things because if you read the stories of the Roman gods... You have these Roman and Greek gods having illicit physical relationships with women. Satan was trying to destroy it. When you read the story of the Buddha, you have the white elephant entering his mother Maya um, after a period of, of abstinence from her husband. Before that, she was having a thing. But, you know, so you get all of these stories in history. But when you come to Jesus, the story is so different. This is the creative act of God. Not some immoral act of a God. It's a unique story. And if you can't understand that, guess what? You're normal. Because a miracle that can be explained is not a miracle at all. If you can explain the miracle, it's no longer a miracle. The essence of a miracle is something that can't be explained. It is the divine intervention of a holy God suspending natural laws and doing something that is supernatural. A miracle is a pregnant virgin. How sad it is that we have come to the place today that we think we have to figure out how God has done all of the supernatural miracles of history. Well, it could have been this or it could have been that. But it couldn't be a miracle because you know what we're trying to do? We are trying to reduce God to our understanding and to our level. What we have in the virgin birth is a supernatural act of God 
And to try to explain it any other way is either on the good side, human delusion, or at its worst, satanic deception. Just be aware of that. No, we can't understand it. The question that you have to ask, does the evidence support it? Does the facts support it? Is there probable cause? And I believe there is. I mean, think of it this way. Does the life of Jesus indicate that he was more than just your average guy? Does it give evidence to what the angel announced and Luke recorded? I believe it does. When Jesus was walking on earth, he told the guys who were trying to kill him, he said, just, if one of you can show just one thing that I've done wrong, and they couldn't do it. Gives evidence to what was said. So going back to our law illustration, is there sufficient evidence offered here for a reasonable person to believe that maybe the claim is reliable? I don't understand it. But maybe it's reliable. And I think the key to answering that phrase is that last phrase. Nothing is impossible with God. Now that's where faith comes in. Not a blind leap in the dark, but an examination of the evidence and coming to a reasonable conclusion. We have a faith that's examinable historically. And this is one of the things that separates Christianity from every other religion in the world. You look at all of the other religions in the world, and you have to simply accept the claims of the founder. But in the Judeo-Christian tradition, there's historical, there's geographical references that are fully supported by historic and scientific investigation. One author, a guy by the name of, of uh, Nelson Gluick, said that no archaeological discovery has ever contradicted a, fa a report in the Bible. None. None. It's supported by historical evidence. Now let me put this in perspective for you. Julius Caesar. How many of you know, have heard about Julius Caesar? It's not a trick question, okay? Yeah, okay. Some of you, you know. I'm not going to quiz you on Julius Caesar. But what we know and what we believe about Julius Caesar and what you learn in high school about Julius Caesar and what you learn in history about Julius Caesar all comes from one book called the Gallic Wars, not the Galactic Wars. This morning I said it was the Galactic Wars. Caesar was ahead of his time. Um, the Gallic Wars. The guy that wrote this book was hired by Julius Caesar to write it. I just burned out. He was hired by Julius Caesar to write it. He writes it 800 years, excuse me, I shouldn't look down when I'm doing that, should I? He writes it 800 years after the event takes place. We have eight copies, not all in full. 
But we believe that a guy named Julius Caesar lived and did what he did in history, even though the closest copy of anything about him came about 800 years after he lived. Historians tell us that's negligible. Well, you can believe that. It, it's accurate. You, you can go with that. But when it comes to Jesus Christ, we have four different authors writing within 30 years of his lifetime. And we're told, well, there's not enough evidence for what they say. You can't believe that. Now, I'm sorry, but that's just ridiculous, if you ask me. Mary's confronted by an angel. She's troubled and confused with what she found, but she's comforted because God gives her the grace that she needs. Next slide. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word to me be fulfilled. Then the angel left her. Now you need to understand something. Mary responds to this. I am the Lord's servant. May your word be to me. May it be fulfilled. Then the angel left her. Now understand this. When Mary said yes, she wasn't launched into an idyllic life. And she wasn't instantly famous. Just the opposite. When Mary said yes, she lived the rest of her life as the girl with a questionable reputation. You read Jewish literature and they claim that she had a willing relationship with a Roman soldier stationed in Nazareth. That's how Jesus came about. And if you read the New Testament when Jesus is talking to the Pharisees and telling them that, that you know, where he's from, they said, <laughs> hey, look, we know who our daddy is more than you know. I mean, it was a slam. It was a slam at him. So saying that you, yes to God, doesn't guarantee you a trouble-free life. The apostle Paul wrote, in fact, everyone who wants to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Everyone who wants to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. So listen to me. Don't let that reality stop you from saying yes because I will tell you this when you trade your will for God's will it is a trade up every time it's a trade up and it may not be easy and it may not be comfortable and it may lead to misunderstanding but it's the best course that you can take it's the only course you can take so if you're not a non-believer, maybe you're watching on Facebook, you're not really sure what you believe, maybe for the first time today you're considering, considering what God has.
what he's given. It's the greatest gift ever given. Now, here's what we know about gifts. A gift is free to you, right? But somebody paid for it. A gift is free to you, but it comes free to you because somebody paid for it. Now, here's something else that you probably think about gifts. You maybe not even thought about this about a gift. But if someone gives you a gift and you say, eh, nah, I don't want it. It's no longer a gift. It's not, it's not useful for you, is it? A gift is only a gift if received. God's gift to you is only his gift to you if you will receive what he offers. I hope you'll consider this. If you haven't made this decision for Christ, I hope you'll examine this evidence. You'll put aside your modern opinions and say, does the evidence support it? And I, I hope that when you look at it, you'll find out that it does. And I hope that you'll say yes to him and receive this marvelous gift of everlasting life and a life that has meaning and purpose. And if you're a Christian and you're here and you've received that gift and you're kind of like, treating it right now like that ugly Christmas sweater that you didn't want, but somebody gave it to you. Because you don't understand the value of the gift. And the reason you don't understand the value of the gift is because your yes to him has brought you criticism, spot you hardship. <laughs> you know, today for, for young people, a virgin is a negative term, not a positive term. And we're thinking, it made, I don't like, and the young people, you hate being different. Those who live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. But here's what I know. The safest place in the world to be is in the center of God's will. And if you are in the center of God's will, you have nothing to be afraid of. Stop it. Even when things are going out of control, God's got it. Stop worrying. Give it to him. Trust him. And if you're not in the center of God's will, that should be the biggest thing you should be concerned about. All the other stuff that you're sweating about are little things. The eternal question is, where do I stand with God? Have I found favor with him? Because I received the gift that he offered. And you see, the good work that we do is not because we're trying to get in better with God. Man, if I can get in good with God, I can get him, give me more gifts. Get him, give me what I want. We, the good works we do are not to try to get in better with God. You're as close as God as you can in Jesus Christ. You can't get any closer. The good works we do is simply a P.S. saying thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you for this marvelous gift that you've given me. So as we close, Dave and Meyer are going to come and they're going to lead us in our invitation song, I have decided to follow Jesus. That's a decision you will never regret. It will be tough at times.
but it's a decision you will never, ever regret. And if you'd like to make a decision, some people like to come forward. If you want to come forward and pray about something, it's on your heart and mind. It doesn't even have to be anything about what we talked about. It might be personal things that you're going through and you just need that relief. You come to this side and you can pray and go back to your seat. No one will bother you. Or if you want someone who will come and pray with you and help you through a difficult time, you come to this side and someone who's trained as an encourager will come and help carry that burden. But if he's speaking and you'd like to respond, I invite you, make that step. And if you've never received that gift, receive it today. Okay, let me pray for us. Father, thank you, thank you, thank you for the marvelous gift. I get it that I, we can't wrap our minds around it. I can't. I don't know why you would love me. I know me. But you did. And you gave. And because you gave, I have found favor with the God of the universe. Not because I deserve it, not because I'm good, but because you've graced. You've given me that unmerited favor. You made a declaration that I don't deserve, and you've justified me, making me just as if I've never sinned. And you've done that for everyone who said yes to you. And if there's a person listening to me today that hasn't made that decision, I pray that today will be the day they say yes. And they'll receive that gift. And Lord, more importantly, they'll unwrap it. And they'll enjoy the fellowship that comes with knowing you. And for believers who are struggling, who have that fear, Lord, I pray that you just, like with Mary, just tell them, don't fear. I got this. Nothing is impossible with me. That impossible situation you think you're in, not impossible. I got it. So moved by your spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand.